the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. Good morning. It's lovely to be here. It's lovely to see you. Uh, Welcome to those of you watching online. Uh, and maybe those of you who are diligent and uh, catching up later, those of you who've been to Spree and those of you who've been to the gathering, uh, it's really great that we can journey through John's Gospel together because that's what we've been doing. We've been looking at come and see, come and see who Jesus is, which reminds me, I'm just going to turn this around. I wanted to turn that around because there are some great I am statements and we're going to be thinking about when Jesus said I am uh, in a little bit. So over the next three weeks uh, we are looking at the part in John's gospel where Jesus is betrayed and denied, um, where he's put on trial, where he's crucified and where he's buried. You know, these are quite dark stories. The light of Jesus's life is extinguished by corruption, violence, and fear. You know, the man who at one point had thousands of followers stands alone. The man who can heal the sick, walk on water, feeds thousands of people with five small loaves and two fish is going to be betrayed arrested, denied, and crucified. And yet, in John's telling of the events, in John's gospel, I think there is one unmissable fact that brings light to that darkness. And it brings light, I think, to all subsequent darknesses that we've just prayed about. I mean, thank you, Mike. It's so good to pray together, isn't it? There's so much we need to pray about. But one unmissable fact that brings light to all darknesses, and I think it's true in Jesus' arrest, it's true in his trial, it's true even on the cross, uh, and that is this. At the point of seeming maximum defeat, Jesus is in command. Jesus is in command. He was in command back then, and he is now. So shall we read today's passage? If you want to grab a green Bible, there are some at the back. We're reading John chapter 18. Uh, If you want to turn to it on your phones or your tablets, it's also going to be on the screen. John chapter 18, verses 1 to 27. It's page 1025 on these Bibles. Jesus arrested. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. That's just over the way from the city of Jerusalem. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, 
went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of these man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood round a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I have always taught in the synagogues or at the temple, where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas the priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was standing there warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a cock began to crow. And that was just as Jesus had predicted it. Betrayed and denied, that's today's title. And I think that perhaps that makes us see Jesus as a victim. And in an earthly sense, he was a victim. He was a man from a very humble background, growing up in a small place, 
in a land ruled by a harsh Roman regime. He'd angered the leaders of his own people. He didn't have any earthly power. He was arrested unjustly, given an unlawful trial and an unjust punishment. There was no justice in what happened to Jesus from Nazareth. But here's the thing about the account in John's Gospel, about the arrest and trial of Jesus. John doesn't emphasise Jesus' suffering like the other accounts do in Matthew, Mark and Luke. There's no sweating drops of blood. There's no take this cup away from me. There's no, my God, why have you forsaken me? If we just think about his arrest, Jesus knows what Judas is about to do. He predicts it in chapter 13, verse 21 of John. He goes to a place that it was well known that he goes to in verse 2. And he literally steps out of the shadows into the light of the torches and says, who is it you want? There's one person in charge at Jesus' arrest. And it's not Judas. It's not hundreds of soldiers with their torches and their lanterns and their weapons. And it's not Peter with his ear-chopping stunt. It's Jesus. Jesus is in command. I think when we suffer, it can be enormously helpful, can't it, to know that Jesus, our Lord, knows what it's like to suffer too. I'm sure many of you have felt that. He knows what it's like to be human and to live in a broken world. But I found, looking at this passage over the last few weeks, another kind of comfort, a different kind of comfort And that's a comfort in the long-range, big plans of God. Father, Son, Spirit have got this since the beginning. Jesus is in command. God's salvation plan cannot be stopped. God's salvation doesn't depend on my or your effort Jesus is in command, and I find that tremendously comforting. Now, there's so much in this story that we could look at, but all of it points to Jesus being in command and willingly doing what his father wants. We're going to focus on two particular parts. Jesus is in command when arrested, and Peter is most most definitely not in command. Jesus is in command, Peter is not. The hour had come. Jesus had predicted this hour. And he steps out of the darkness in that night, facing an armed detachment of Roman soldiers. And he says, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he. I am he. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Did you spot that? They drew back and fell to the ground. Now, I think that's a sight that's going to stick in the mind of any eyewitnesses. I mean, it probably would have been comic if it hadn't been a little bit scary. All those highly trained men falling over at the word of Jesus, one unarmed man, man, all he said was, I am he. Jesus, the word of God, from the beginning, is far more powerful 
than any number of trained, armed Roman soldiers. You know, they may have been feared all over the ancient world as a ruthless fighting force. But Jesus, he is the word of God from the beginning. Jesus is in command. Jesus is I am. You know, that's like the Old Testament tagline for who God is. And we've been learning, haven't we, of all the I am statements of Jesus. Jesus is the one. I told you I am he. Even at the most demanding, stressful points of his human life, Jesus was in command. And he said to Peter, put your sword away. Whatever Jesus is going to achieve, it's not going to be achieved by armies and revolutions and rule and fear. It's going to be achieved through love and sacrifice and through doing the Father's will. Shall I not drink the cup? my father has given me. I love the way that sentence is phrased. It's a question, but it's a question where the answer is completely and utterly obvious. In John's telling, of course Jesus will drink the cup, the cup that represents God's judgment against all the rubbish and the wickedness in the world. Jesus will be judged Even though he's innocent, he will be judged as if he's wicked. And arrest is the first stage of that judgment. John doesn't say it was easy for Jesus. But he does tell us that he was in command. His one mission, his driving force, his passion, his motivation, his desire is to do the will of the Father. So what's the will of the Father? I mean, he's told us earlier on. John 3, 16 and 17. It's salvation for the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. So I wonder as you sit there and as I stand here, what is Jesus commanding you to do this morning? God speaks through his word, through the witness of John, through the power of the Holy Spirit. What is God commanding you to do this morning? I mean, maybe it's put your sword away. Stop fighting and let Jesus command you. Maybe it's to be loved and known by the one who lays down his life. Did you notice even at the point of this high drama, Jesus is caring for his disciples? He says to the soldiers in verse 8, If you are looking for me, let these men go. Maybe you need to let yourself be loved and known by the one who lays down his life for you. He didn't want to lose anyone then, and he doesn't want to lose you now. What is Jesus commanding us to do this morning? You know, it doesn't have to be earth-shattering. You know, these events are big and they're world-changing. The Son of God letting himself being arrested and bound and denied. But we're not saviors of the world. Only Jesus is. The command Jesus may be giving you this morning might be very humble and very mundane. It might just be a small step on the road to obeying Jesus. You know, that's okay. 
We can obey Jesus in the small, boring, mundane things of life. I'll give you an example. Last year, uh, it was about September and October, Jesus commanded me very gently through a sermon preached on a Sunday here and a midweek home group meeting uh, to do something. I was reminded of this after Rich last week spoke really eloquently uh, and honestly about being part of a home group. So last September, October, we had a sermon on friendship. I don't know if you remember. Uh, And then in the week following, we had a home group Bible study on friendship. And Nick in our group was leading that study. And through his gentle leading and through asking questions about our friendships, uh, we were talking about friendships that might need our attention. Jesus said earlier in John, a new command I give you, love one another. By this, all men will know you are my disciples if you love one another. So myself and another person in the group felt particularly challenged. We each had a friendship that we felt we'd let slide. So we made ourselves accountable to the group. We named our friend and agreed that we would get in contact with them. The friend I named had been going through a bereavement recently and I'd just not been in touch as regularly as I'd wanted to be. And you know what it's like when you don't get in touch with someone and the longer you leave it, you get a bit embarrassed and then you don't want to get in touch and then you get more embarrassed and you don't get in touch and get in touch and it's avoid, 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 avoid. Of course, the problem for me was that I would see my home group members at church and I'd see Nick and every time I'd see him, it's like, ah, yeah. So... After another two months, I did get in touch with my friend, and we went for a walk, and it was good. It was good. It was the right Jesus-obeying thing to do. And then around Christmas, Gary and I got to see her again, and she brought her grown-up son, who doesn't live here, uh, with her. And we connected with him. We've loved him since he was two years old when we were in the same home group. And he's now like 30. And it was so good to reconnect with him. Jesus is in command. He can flatten a Roman battalion with three words. And yet he can be so patient and so loving with us. So we wrestle, don't we, with God's big plans of salvation, God's big plans for saving the earth, and then the choices we make in our ordinary lives. It can be a bit bewildering. It's an old tension, I think, isn't it? God's big plans and our small but very real free will. Did Judas, who betrayed Jesus, have free will? You know, after all, John shows us that Jesus is in command. It was the plan of Almighty God from the beginning. You know, is it fair that we see Judas harshly when Christ's death was essential for the salvation of the world? You know, surely Judas's betrayal was theologically necessary. I don't know if you were thinking that as we were reading through the passage. I found this quote by Elaine Storkey in her book, Meeting God in Matthew, Uh, really helpful. What Judas did was profoundly wrong and he chose to do it. It was his decision. 
God brought salvation through Christ's death. But Christ's death could have happened in any number of ways. God does not put sin in people's hearts, neither Judas's nor ours. We are responsible for our sin. Of course, we cannot explain the connection between what happens inside our time and God's cosmic time. Yet however we look at it, Judas himself bore the guilt of treachery and betrayed the one who loved him. We do have free will, don't we? I had free will whether to text and meet up with my friend or not. You have free will this morning to act or not act on the promptings that God is giving you today through his word. Jesus is in command. And if we want it, there is forgiveness and restoration. Which brings us to Peter. Peter is most definitely not in command. Peter is all over the place. He cuts off the ear of a servant of the high priest and then in a staggering turnaround, he denies knowing Jesus a few hours later. You know, he's bold in the garden without thinking. I mean, he can't really have been thinking, could he? How is he going to do anything with a battalion of Roman soldiers. And he takes out a sword. I mean, who knew that he carried a sword around with him? And then he swipes and cuts off the ear of, a, of a, uh, the high priest's servant. I mean, was he going for the head and he missed? Or was he going for the ear? I mean, I don't know. But what's more interesting, I think, in John's version of this story is we are told the servant's name, and his name is Malchus. Marianne May Thompson, in her John commentary, says this, Malchus does not reappear in the gospel, but named characters, except for well-known Jewish and Roman authorities, such as Caiaphas and Pilate, typically are or become disciples of Jesus. That's a lovely thought, isn't it? Malchus is, in a way, a disinterested bystander. He's doing his job, and then he gets his right ear chopped off, and then he gets it healed. He gets to see that Jesus is in command. Maybe he got to see uh, what was happening. Maybe he got to see the corruption of his master, the the high priest. Jesus cared for Malchus the servant of the one who wanted to destroy him. Jesus was in command. Peter was not. Peter's courage melted away so fast, didn't it? He can't even own up to following Jesus in front of the person who has the least power in the whole of the story. Did you notice that? A servant girl in the courtyard of the high priest's household. And I think the way that John switches the action in the story from Jesus to Peter, then back to Jesus and back to Peter makes it even more obvious. Jesus steps into the light and says, here I am. Then he's arrested, bound and taken to Annas. Meanwhile, Peter says, I am not. Back to Jesus. Jesus is standing before the father-in-law of the high priest, declaring that he hasn't said anything in secret. 
Think of all those I am statements that so many witnesses heard. Meanwhile, Peter hides by the fire and says, I am not. I am not a follower. He says it twice more, even once to the relative of Malchus. Jesus is in command. Peter is not. So what does that mean for us? You know, in the midst of the violence, the midst of weakness and denial, the midst of corruption and indifference and messy human lives, God has a plan and God saves. I don't think we place ourselves in the place of Jesus in the story. You know, we don't achieve salvation by being betrayed and denied. Jesus is the one who came from the Father to save the world. Jesus is the I am. I think if we're going to put ourselves in the story, let's look at Peter and Malchus. Peter denied Jesus. He failed the test. He ran away. But he was restored. He was restored in the most beautiful way, my favorite Jesus story of all four Gospels. But we're not talking about it today. That will be about five weeks' time, John 21. If you have failed Jesus this week, there is hope and restoration and forgiveness. And I think we all need that. Whatever age and stage you are at, you can come and say sorry in a moment as you drink wine and eat bread to remember Jesus' death. But perhaps you here or, or you watching online, you haven't previously pledged yourself to follow Jesus but you've been touched this morning like Malchus was. Maybe you've been touched by the testimony of John that Jesus is in command of your life. You haven't been knocked off your feet. You haven't had your ear severed and then healed. But maybe you have been knocked off your stride. Maybe you have been cut to the heart. Maybe you need to find out more about Jesus. Maybe you are being named by God this morning, the great I am, to come to him. It's your choice. It's your free will. You can choose whether to say yes to that call or not. And if you want to say yes to that call, please come and speak to me afterwards. The verse at the top of focus, the one you received by email or you received it at the door, says this, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Let's pray. Lord, you ask us, who is it you want? And we confess sometimes we don't know. Sometimes we deny you. Sometimes we get so wrapped up in the trappings of life. And yet you know our struggle and you want us to turn to you and confess to you. Thank you that you followed your Father's will willingly for love for us. And help us to act on whatever you've been speaking to us about this morning. Help us to share it with our home group or the people that we've come with. Help us to take a small, humble, mundane step in obedience towards you. In Jesus' name, amen.